Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. To everyone in the United States and around the world, thank you so much. Hey, around the world, Ireland, rocking it, Germany. I, I want to say something even to the countries like Saudi Arabia, where we only have one listener. Every listener counts. Every listener counts. I want to tell you, you are an advocate, almost a pioneer help spreading the news about people living with disabilities in your country. I know some of those, it's hard, a hard road, but it takes one person to get everything started. So thank you so much. Share the show with other people in your country. That's going to help us get this going. And Yoshiko Dart, hello. How are you today? You know, this year is the 30th anniversary uh, celebration of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act and Yoshiko and her late husband, Justin Dart, were so very involved in making this happen. So I'll be talking about it all the time. But thank you so much, Yoshiko. To our sponsors, Hi Mark, who has been our lead sponsor for four years. Our new sponsor, main sponsor, following uh, Highmark's lead, is People's Gas, and a new sponsor, Employment Options. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I can't thank you enough for how you're helping me educate and help others. And really, that is what it's all about with our guest today. Our guest, Christy Troutman, who is the executive director of the FISA Foundation, let me tell you, she is passionate about helping people with disabilities. And I will say this, she's the real deal. So Christy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for the opportunity today, Joyce. I'm thrilled to be here with you and all of your listeners around the world. Well, thank you, Christy. And, you know, I was thinking about something today. A lot of young people in college really don't think about, hey, I could have a career working for a foundation, which is so great, in my opinion. But how about you? Why did you get involved in the philanthropic industry. How did that happen and why? Well, Joyce, I think like you just said, I um, was in college. I was passionate. I really wanted to make a difference and I didn't know anything about foundations or philanthropy. Um, uh, A wise person once told me that our lives are shaped by the problems that we seek to solve. And there's plenty of problems to work on around the world. It can be personal problems like how do I raise my child to be a good citizen and a contributor. Um, The problem that really stirred me when I was in college is what was my role? How could I help the world be a little better, a little safer, and a little fairer? 
And so um, while I was in college, I got um, uh, my first job, an internship at Pittsburgh Action Against Rape, which was a nonprofit working on um, supporting people who had experienced abuse in their lives. And so I was working in that space, and um, it was incredibly important. They did things like staffed hotlines for people who felt alone and needed help, um, went with people to the hospital, worked on changing policies and, and laws, and so I was working on all of those things, and I, at a party one day, I met a local disability advocate who you probably, I'm sure, knew, Carolyn Hoffman, um, who was a professor and an advocate. She was working on um, how to help women with disabilities succeed, and she learned where I worked, and she said, Christy, women with disabilities are three times more likely to be abused than women without disabilities. What are you going to do about that? Um, and she helped me to learn a lot about people with disabilities and about those issues, and we ended up writing a grant and getting funding from FISA Foundation, which I had never heard of before. Um, and so I was lucky enough over the years to really get to know FISA so FISA is a charitable grant-making foundation focused on improving the lives of women and girls and people with disabilities. And one of the things that I learned is that FISA gives both money in small amounts, mostly in the Pittsburgh area, but also um, influence and connections to help support our work. And so I was lucky enough to get hired at FISA about 15 years ago, and I have been the executive director ever since, um, since 2010. And my life is still focused on how do we solve some of these big problems about helping the world be better, safer, and fairer for all people, including people with disabilities. We are so lucky to have you. We are so lucky because people with disabilities, you know, the late Marco Bristow, who passed away just this past year, it was devastating to all of us, but she used to say, remember, disability and poverty go hand in hand. And there are so many women with disabilities that just need someone, someone to help them. And you know, uh, when you were talking about uh, Pittsburgh Action Against Rape, I knew there is a high amount of sexual assault against women with disabilities. And as you know, I'm living with epilepsy. And sadly, that is very high with women living with epilepsy. So I'm just so glad that you're doing what you do and taking your passion uh, to this because it is so important. So now you're at this great foundation that I love, FISA. What is FISA? Like, what are some of your key well, tell us, what do you do? What is FISA? Tell us that first. And then after that, you can tell us about your key initiatives. Okay, excellent. I love talking about FISA Foundation. So, um, as I said earlier, FISA Foundation is in the, the business of awarding grants to nonprofit organizations in our local community here in the greater Pittsburgh area to improve the lives of women and girls and people with disabilities. So, one of the things that you always want to know about a foundation is where do they get the money to begin with? 
um, and every foundation has a different story. So FISO's story is that our money came from the sale of Harmerville Rehabilitation Center. It was a rehab hospital that operated here in Pittsburgh um, for more than 40 years, um, helping people uh, recover from car accidents or strokes or, you know, other sudden illnesses and learning to, you know, sort of return to and have a productive life living with a new disability. Um, When that hospital ended up being sold to a for-profit, became a for-profit hospital, um, there's all kinds of rules about what's allowed to happen with that money. And so you're not allowed to, like, throw a big party or have a cruise because that money was raised, um, you know, through charitable purposes. It had to continue the work that it was originally raised for. And so our um, endowment originally came from the sale of a hospital. One of the things that a lot of people don't know about FISA is that before Harmerville Rehabilitation Center was a rehabilitation center, it was originally in the early 1900s a home for um, single women who had babies and who didn't have any kind of family supports. They weren't married. They were kind of on their own. Um, And so we were founded by a group of women who had graduated from private schools, girls' schools, and wanted to really make a difference. And so those women decided they were going to help other women and especially these vulnerable women who didn't have any support. Um, And so... We talk about FISA having three lives. The first life, starting in the early 1900s, as a convalescent home for women. Um, And then our second life was as a rehabilitation hospital. And our third life today is as a charitable grant-making foundation. And so um, we fund in um, southwestern Pennsylvania, and we have kind of three bucket areas of interest, three things that we work on um, over a long period of time. So those are um, health care, access to health care, um, health and well-being is our first bucket. Our second bucket, which we've already talked a little bit about, is preventing abuse, domestic violence, and sexual assault. And our third bucket we call our equity bucket, which around disability issues means making sure that people with disabilities can get jobs, competitive employment in the community. It also for us means um, right to education, Um, It means the right to participate in the community in a broader way um, and be looked at as a whole person and as a valuable contributing member of society. So those three buckets are um, some of the things that we focused on for a long time. Would you like me to give you some examples of projects that have been really exciting to work on? Oh, I would love it. Yeah. So healthcare is the first bucket that I mentioned. We've been working on that for 20 years. I know that the healthcare systems across the world are very, very different. Um, here in Pittsburgh, there is a lot of quality healthcare that is available to many people. But one of the things that we're aware of is that healthcare is not as available to people with disabilities because there's all kinds of access barriers. So for instance, Um, originally came to our attention 20 years ago that many people who have physical disabilities, if they use wheelchairs or crutches, have mobility um, limitations, that it's very hard to get onto an exam table, right? That if you can't kind of hop up onto the exam table, how are you going to get up there? And we heard all kinds of very difficult stories of people either being examined in their wheelchairs 
or being hoisted by office staff up onto a little narrow table that didn't feel very safe, or all kinds of other not very dignified, not quality health care things. And so we set out to work on how do we remove some of those barriers in healthcare? How do we make sure that people can get into healthcare facilities to see a doctor, that they can actually get into the exam rooms, that they can get onto the tables, and then even basic things like how do you get weighed if you can't stand independently on a scale? Um, so these are some of the issues we've been working on for a very long time. Um, with lots of nonprofit partners um, who are, I think, working to make uh, services a little bit more accessible. One of the most exciting things that we're doing right now is um, training, helping to train future medical professionals and nurses to really be attuned to disability issues and to really think about that um, as part of their future work. And so... Um, uh, we are very proud that one of our local nursing schools, Duquesne School of Nursing, started a standardized patient program, which is um, people sort of pretending to be patients so the nurses, nurse students can practice on them. Um, so they were hiring then. They started to hire people with authentic disabilities. And it gave the nurses, for many of them, the first time to actually talk to somebody with a disability and hear about their life and what their barriers were, but also what their interests were and how they went about living their life um, and uh, managing accessibility barriers. And we're finding that it's those kind of trainings really um, can change how health professionals think about people with disabilities as whole people that deserve dignified care. So that's one example that we're super excited about. You know, I am so excited to hear you say that because <clears throat> more than one of my doctors that know what I do have said, oh, we're looking into more how to accommodate uh, women with disabilities. It, this would be uh, doctors specifically working with women. And one of them talked about how do you weigh someone? Um, I know some of my friends have just had a terrible time when they've gone for a mammogram uh, or getting up on a table. Like, they just don't think about wheelchairs when they do a lot of this. Um, and I'm really, really glad you're doing that. Really glad you're doing that, Christy. Thank you. Yeah, there's a lot to be done, and not just around access for people who use wheelchairs, but if somebody's blind or somebody's mm -hmm. deaf, they can encounter very different barriers in trying to see a doctor and get attention. Um, one of my friends talked about, who, who does use a wheelchair, talked about, you know, sometimes I have to go to the emergency room. And I, it would be great if when I went into the emergency room, I, in my wheelchair, did not become the emergency of the day. Like, really, I'm here because I think I broke my wrist. And you're panicked about the fact that I'm in a wheelchair and you're not sure what you're going to do with my wheelchair when you put me on the table. Um, and so we have a lot of work to do in helping our healthcare system see people with disabilities as people and to be trained and ready to provide really quality, accessible care. So lots of work to do um, on that issue, but it's also exciting to see passionate advocates around the country and around the world who are working on that. Yeah, one last comment about that. I have someone that works for me who is deaf, and when she goes to the doctor, this is always an ordeal. 
you know, that they can't find a sign language interpreter. There wasn't one available. I mean, imagine going to the doctor. I mean, you have to sit and pay attention to what they're telling you, period, to understand it and remember it. Imagine if you're deaf without an interpreter. So I, you know, I just hope everyone uh, joins in helping you and uh, giving you more funding because this is so important. So glad to hear you're doing that. Actually, I'm really excited to hear you're doing that, Christy. Well, what are some of the other programs going on? Another project that we're very excited about, um, we're doing in partnership with Bender Consulting and the United Way, is called um, the Disability Inclusion Council. And so um, United Ways work with a lot of employers around um, philanthropic giving and volunteering. And our local United Way has partnered with Bender Consulting and FISA Foundation and Disability In, which is a good friend to both of us, um, providing national consultation on um, disability access and inclusion in employment to really work as a whole community on doing better about hiring people with disabilities who can and want to work and make companies better for being there. So um, over the last year, we've had more than 40 companies, some really big companies and some smaller companies, um, working on learning best practices in outreach, in hiring, and retaining employees with disabilities. Um, and they're getting such important support and consultation from Disability In and from Bender Consulting that over the last year, that group has hired more than 1,000 people with disabilities last year. Um, and so that is something that we're very excited about, um, helping in that way since it's such an important issue for individuals and for companies. Well, uh, thank you. It is an honor to work with you. And at the end of the day, it's all about my dream, which is employment. You know, I always say without employment, you cannot be free in this country. You know, can't buy a house, can't go on vacation. You can't live the American dream. Sadly, some people can't get benefits. You know, they're, they're choosing between, I mean, I know people that have counted the medication, the pills, mm-hmm. because they didn't have money. I mean, it's just so terrible. So, um, you know, employment is what it is all about for people living with disabilities. <clears throat> and uh, by the way, before I forget this, Christy, what is your website www.fisafoundation, FISA Foundation, no marks or dashes or anything, .org. FISAFoundation.org. Once again, F-I-S-A, in case you, uh, I assume people make donations to the foundation. Well, we certainly welcome that, and we have a uh, blog and social media that if people would like to f- um, follow us on Instagram or um, LinkedIn or Facebook, we hope that um, they will get involved in understanding our work and make changes in their own community. Oh, yes. Times- right, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. What were you going to say, Christy? 
I was going to say that sometimes people think um, that the change makers are other people. And I wanted to go back to something that you said in your opening comments, um, Joyce, about that it takes one person to really make change. And having been at FISA for 15 years and in the nonprofit sector for 30 years, I just want to underscore that, that every big change that I have ever seen happen in our community or the world has started with one person who had passion and who was determined to make a difference, even if they didn't really have a very good plan at the beginning when they got started, but that they were willing to keep asking questions and having conversations and getting other people to think about their important issue. You can make a big difference as an individual, but it's often helpful to be connected to other people who are working on the same kind of issues as you. Oh, yeah. To that, one of my favorite quotes that has been you know, attributed to so many people, I'm just going to say anonymous. So it is, you may not be able to change the world, but to one person, you may be the world. That is so true. Don't think that. Don't think, oh, it's just going to be, you know, some leader that you know in the community or or someone well-known. Every person Every person can make a difference. Everyone. We need every disability advocate out there that wants to help, or as Christy said, help in your own community. Um, So, Christy, here's a question I have. There are many not-for-profits I meet, and they'll all be talking about writing proposals and, you know, going out, trying to get funding. Uh, You know, my question is, what are some of the key steps that they need to realize or they need to do to qualify for funding from anyone, from any foundation? Mm-hmm. That's a really important question, and I'm glad that you asked me so that we could talk about that today, Joyce. Um, so in the United States, the IRS, Internal Revenue Service, has a lot of rules and regulations about philanthropy, about who's allowed to apply for grants and who's allowed to get grants. So um, incorporated nonprofit organizations or organizations that have 501c3 status, people talk about it that way sometimes, are eligible to um, apply for grants from foundations or corporations. Um, But you have to know the rules first. So like individuals, who aren't connected to an organization, really aren't eligible to apply to foundations for grants or money like that. And so the first rule of business is to understand wherever you are what the rules are about philanthropy. So I'll assume that everybody is, has, is clear about what their rules are. Um, beyond that, I have, I think, four ideas about how you go about um, qualifying and uh, writing a good proposal or receiving good funding. So the first and a step that many people overlook is that if you're applying for funding, you have to first learn who that funder is. Um, What are they interested in? What kind of things are they funding? Um, What are their kind of rules about where they fund? So, for instance, we fund only in a small 10-county area around Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, United States. And so we have gotten lots of inquiries for funding that are in 
states far away, sometimes um, other countries, and those are just not things that we're allowed to fund. And so step one is if you want to ask for funding to um, really get to know who that funder is, um, if you're eligible to receive funding from them, and then what are the things that they care about? Because one of the things that funders, foundations do when they receive a grant proposal is to first look at, is there a match? Most foundations have a mission and have strategic priorities that are pretty well-defined, often available on their website. And so you want to make sure that you have a match um, in who you're asking for funding. So that's one thing. Another is that you um, should work on telling a really effective story about what is the problem that you are working to solve in your community. Um, How are you going about making a difference? Who is it exactly you're wanting to help? What's the structure of the program or project? Um, How will it all fit together? Kind of what's your plan? But... um, it's also important to tell the human story about that. And so one of the ways you can think about that is whose life will you be changing in the work that you're doing? And to make sure that that comes across as you are asking for funding, whose life are you looking to change? Because really that's what you're asking your donor or funder for is to be a partner to you in changing somebody's life. And so um, think about your project and how you talk about it in that kind of way. Uh, Another thing is that you want to talk about when you're successful at doing this, can you articulate what does success look like? And so if you're working on employment, success looks a little different than if you're working on access to health care or than if you're working on helping people feel better included in the community. And so you want to be able to describe and talk about how, would you, how are you going to measure it, how, do you, how will you know if you're successful, if your program works or not. Um, and the last I would say is that you need to be able to show that you're trustworthy, that if somebody gives you money, that you have good systems in place for tracking how you're going to use that money um, and reporting back about what you did with it and the difference that it makes. That would be my advice. There are a number of organizations in the United States. Our uh, library system often has resources to learn who are the funders in your community. And so that would be another thing uh, that people could consult. A lot of times people, I think, think about grant proposals as um, really kind of complicated and scary. But I think these things, telling a good story, um, understanding who the funder is and how they can be a good partner to you um, in creating, um, changing that person's life, being able to talk about um, what success looks like and how you're going to measure it and demonstrating that you're trustworthy can be really important um, in applying for funding. You know what? This is so valuable of information because I talk to a lot of people and they're just like, I'm going to apply here. I'm going to look for a grant. I don't think enough people take time to do the research and understand what makes you eligible. 
you know, at a foundation. So thank you so much for reviewing that. And here we are. It's on our news break on the half hour. Advocacy Matters with our superstar anchor, Perry Jude Radisic, Executive Director of Disability Rights Pennsylvania. Perry, are you with us? Uh, Joyce, I am. We're happy to hear from you. So what do you have to talk about today? Well, I have an update on vocational rehabilitation, and there's really two things to talk about. First, uh, 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of the law that created vocational rehabilitation for people who did not serve in the military. The law was called the National Civilian Vocational Rehabilitation Act, and the law was signed by President Woodrow Wilson on June 2nd, 1920. So again, this is the 100th anniversary of our Vocational Rehabilitation Act. And so vocational rehabilitation was a concept created to train injured veterans in 1918. And Congress wanted to make sure veterans with disabilities had employment opportunities following their service. And then in 1920, Congress wanted to expand vocational rehabilitation to include all persons with disabilities, not just veterans. So here we are, and we're going to celebrate the 100th anniversary of vocational rehabilitation throughout the year. Now, on our website at disabilityrightspa.org, we have a link to the U.S. Department of Education Rehabilitation Services Administration, which will be having information posted Throughout the year, they'll be updating their website throughout the year so that you can make sure you read uh, what RSA is saying about the 100th anniversary uh, all year long. So it's great to be able to celebrate that. Now, here in Pennsylvania, and from time to time on, on Disability Matters, we've talked about what's happening with our vocational rehabilitation system And the sad news was, uh, last year, our Office of Vocational Rehabilitation closed its order of selection, which meant so many people who wanted employment-related services through our OVR had to be put on a wait list. Yesterday, OVR announced that it will briefly open the order of selection wait list. So on February 1st, Pennsylvania will begin to process at least 2,200 individuals off the wait list with priority given to people with disabilities who have sat on that wait list the longest. Now, again, we have a link to the order of selection uh, website for Pennsylvania's Office of Vocational Rehabilitation. And starting at the end of this week, January 31st, OVR will begin to post updates about opening up that order of selection. So it's important to us. I know it's important to you. So you want to visit disabilityrightspa.org and learn about how OVR is opening up its order of selection and how long that will stay open. 
So at Advocacy Matters, you want to learn more about the 100th anniversary of vocational rehabilitation. You want to check out what Pennsylvania is doing when it reopens its order of selection on February 1st. And if you're interested in making sure OVR gets additional funds to keep that order of selection open, the Pennsylvania State House Appropriations Committee and the Senate Appropriations Committee are going to start hearings on their funding on February 19th and 20th. And we have links to those committee hearings as well at disabilityrightspa.org. So, Joyce, it's a it's just great news for OVR uh, here in Pennsylvania and across the country. Yes, that is great news. I do have to ask you a couple of questions, Perry. Number one, mm-hmm. uh, those 2,000, is it 2,000 people or is it 2,200? Uh, 2,200 at least, we've been told. Okay, so those 2,200, and obviously it could be more, how do you have any, I guess we don't know, but I'm, how long do you think that would take? Don't you think that would take several months to go through all those people? Oh, yes. Uh, it, it will take a little while to pull those people off the wait list and begin servicing them. Absolutely. Because what I'm meaning is then uh, with that order of selection, the college student or the young man that, that has issues with the wheelchair or employment, whatever it is, will not be able to get services until that is completed. Is that correct? Uh, Do you know what I mean? They, if they will have, have to be get, fully served. Yes, they will have to be fully served. After 2200 Yeah. So you get my point. This could, and also when you said uh, briefly, what did you mean by that? They will briefly open this order of selection. Well, uh, they may have to close it again. I think they're estimating how much money that they might have to open the order of selection, which is good news. We're happy more people can be served. We're, we're not happy that at some point they're going to have to close the order of selection again. And I think that's what they're signaling to the community. Uh, They're estimating at least 2,200 people will come off, and then at some point down the line they'll have to close the list again. That's what they're signaling. Because they don't believe they'll have the funding. That's correct. Oh, well, you know, please go to... uh, the website disabilityrightspa.org and go to Advocacy Matters because we all have to get involved. What Christy was talking about uh, earlier about each person counts, we really need to get involved and do everything we can to try to get this funding. So, uh, again, great news because of those Sadly, all those people have been on the waiting list, uh, but not where we want it to be yet. Uh, And I'm really glad that you also made us aware of the 100th anniversary and how we can follow that with the U.S. Department of Education and RSA. So thank you so much, Uh, Perry. We look 
forward every week to hearing from you and hearing this news, and we will look forward to hearing you next week. Yes, thanks, Joyce, and uh, take care. She is so awesome, I'll tell you. Yeah, Christine, we start we start doing this, oh, let's see, a year and a half or more. Uh, and guess who thought of this? Mary Brocker. Mary Brocker. <laughs> One Mary, of my favorite people. For all, yeah, for my for all the listeners, Mary is the executive vice president, uh, chief operating officer. Really runs Bender Eye Disability Bender Leadership Academy. The operations uh, of what's happening. Obviously, we're a small company, so you know we're all involved. But Mary does so much to uh, help me and help this organization, and she is an idea person. And one day, oh, years ago, years and years ago, Mary said, you know, that would be great if you could, like, have a little news break where someone called in every week to give an update. Well, here's what happened. I'd tell people, but they weren't interested until I'm on the board of Disability Rights PA, which is a protection and advocacy organization uh, here in the here in Pennsylvania and when I told her about this she said I'll do it and she has been excellent she does research she they put it on their website uh, it's called advocacy matters as of course disability matters and uh, she just does a fabulous job so uh, and you know what we don't have like a news Line. Do you know what I mean, Christy? So I think this is so great that that we that uh, that we're doing this. It is a wonderful way to let people know how they can be involved. This is another mm-hmm. example of you know calling your um, elected official, talking about the issues that matter to you, um, saying what you believe should happen with the budget is really important in influencing policy. I think many people discount that, think I'm just one person, what could my voice really mean? And it makes a huge difference. And by the way, that includes voting. Register to vote, vote, make sure you vote. Remember, in so many elections, it has been in the hundreds or thousands that made a difference. You, if you want, don't, I always tell people, don't complain if you didn't vote. Voting is you're a citizen. That's so powerful. Uh, so that's one way you can do that. Um, Christy, your opinion. How do you think uh, Pittsburgh fares in comparison to other cities uh, on, on charitable giving? Well, Joyce, that's a great question. I think Pittsburgh has a lot of very generous people. Um, it's a great city to have grown up in and to be involved in right now. I think a lot of times when people think about charitable giving or philanthropy, they focus on foundations. Um, and it is true that Pittsburgh has way more than our share of charitable grant-making foundations. But across Pennsylvania, in a given year, foundations give about $900 million dollars which is a lot of money. But there's something that surprises a lot of people, which is how much do you think individuals gave? So if 
foundations gave $900 million. How much do you think individuals gave in Pennsylvania? No idea. Do you think it would be more or less? I think it would be, you mean more individually? I think it would be more. No. Yeah, it would be more. So if foundations gave $900 million, individuals gave $7 billion. You know what? Why does this not surprise me? It's terrible when you think about it, but why does that not surprise me? Why I said more is when studies have been done, uh, I can't mention too much, but you know, like United Way, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's the secretary that donates when the executive does not. So Mm -hmm. that's why... Uh, But I believe, in other words, I believe it's the person, I believe it's that individual person that makes those small donations, they give everything they have. Sometimes, you know, what I meant is there are people on these boards of foundations, and I believe so much more could happen. So, you know what, that does not surprise me. Mm -hmm. So, I think... If we each give what we can give um, in whatever amount to be generous, that is a huge amount that we can use for good and for making our communities better and safer and fairer. I think the other thing that a lot of people don't think about is volunteering um, and the importance and the difference you can make by giving some of your time to a local organization or an effort that matters to you. That really is the engine of the nonprofit sector, Um, how generous people are willing to be giving an hour here, an hour there, a few hours a month to um, really work on an issue that matters to them. And, you know, having worked in the nonprofit sector my whole life, I can say that the good in the community would never happen without people being willing to generously volunteer their time. Um, and so encourage everybody who's listening to think about whatever it is that you have to give, whatever skill, whatever ability, whatever time, whatever money, it all really matters. Um, and that I think we have an obligation, as you said, that we live in this world together that we're citizens together, that we have a responsibility for fixing some of the problems and challenges. It's not somebody else's responsibility only. It's also partially ours. And so finding a way to make your personal difference really matters. And, you know, um, I respect all religions, all faiths. You know, we're all brothers and sisters. Um, And I think they all emphasize giving. For example, I will have to say that the New Testament, one of the main themes is giving. And, uh, you know, we're not going to be King Tut, right? We're not taking this with us. So while we're here, (laughs) (laughs) while we are here, we really need to take time to remember that even a small amount, if you're giving the most you can, and that may be small makes a difference. 
Um, so thank you for saying that. I agree with you. So, Christy, I have a question for you. I think about you, and I think how passionate and professional and kind and generous you are. You must have had a role model, either in the past or present. So who is that? Who is your role model? Oh, Joyce, it is hard to pick one. I feel like there are so many amazing people in my family and in my community who've helped me to learn to be a good person and to do my best and to leave the world a little better than I found it. But when I think about my work, FISA's work on disability, there is one Um, person who really stands out, who helped me get started um, in the early days when I was really all soaking it all in. I was really trying to learn. And her name was Lucy Spruill. So, um, yeah, yeah. Lucy was an amazing uh, disability advocate. She had spina bifida. She used a wheelchair. How I knew her is that she was a professor of um, social work at the University of Pittsburgh. She taught classes. She wrote books. And she worked at UCP class here in Pittsburgh on policy um, advocacy whenever I met her. Um, One of the things that struck me about Lucy is that she was so doggone smart. Any question that you asked her, she would be able to, you know, answer. She was... um, knew so much about disability history and about change-making in the community. But I would say one of the, the things that Lucy really showed me and taught me is, um, you know, sometimes when people see things that are wrong in the world, we get mad, right? And it's right to get mad about things that are wrong and things that are broken and things that are unfair, Um, And sometimes that passion can really fuel us to make a difference. But Lucy taught me that whenever you go in to be an advocate, she said it doesn't really serve you. It's not helpful. It's not productive if you start by attacking the other person as, why didn't you, or you should have, or you don't care. You should learn more about this. That she taught me to... um, give people the benefit of the doubt. And so I saw her time after time after time go into meetings, some with elected officials, some with corporations, some with kind of everyday people um, in the community. And if she saw something was wrong, she would approach it by assuming that that other person meant well but didn't know. And that allowed her to really sit down with people and assume that they didn't really understand how what they were doing was really causing an access problem for people with disabilities, that they were really discriminating even though they didn't realize it. And she was able to forge relationships and help people to better understand and to figure out what is it that they could do that would be a little better and a little fairer. And you know what? People all around this community really looked up to her and talked about how much she taught them and that they remembered, that I remember, 20 years later, that I still think of the ways that Lucy approached situations, and I try to be like that. Um, I think it's really important in our advocacy to remember that whoever we're working with 
they're a human being too. Even if we see things a little differently, that we're human beings trying to solve human problems and that we can be on the same side. Yes, I knew uh, Lucy, who I consider part of the disability history, you know, of Western Pennsylvania, and uh, a great person. And she, she, what a great gift she and lessons she imparted to you. That was yeah. really great. Um, and once again, you see how one person can make an impact on someone else. Um, so, like, this is a great show, and this is a great career uh, that you have. I wanted to ask you, for young people listening to the show, saying, wow, that's really cool, I'd love to do that, what, would, what, what should they do if they want to work for a foundation? For example, going to college, what should they focus on? So this is a really good question, and there's not one clear path. And so I have three pieces of advice. The first is to figure out, like, what what is your area to contribute? What makes you feel passionate? What um, is the problem that you want to set about um, working on for your life? Um, and learn as much as possible about that issue. Um, so that would be step one. Really be informed by your passion and what really fires you up. The second is to really develop yourself, educate yourself. Um, make sure that you have a whole um, well-rounded host of skills. So you may be somebody who um, is really passionate and can talk to other people about issues you care about but are kind of scared about making that more formal, taking a microphone or speaking from a stage in front of people. I would say don't be held back by the things that um, uh, limit you in those ways. Develop a a well-rounded set of skills about how you make a difference. Um, And the third is to cultivate a network of relationships. And so whatever it is that you're passionate about, there are lots of other people passionate about that same thing. And so get to know who they are in your community. Get to know who they are on the Internet. Get to know who works on the policies that you care about. And it's, I think, out of those things, having passion, having some skills, and knowing the people who are working on the issues that you care about, that really helps to shape a meaningful career. Um, and that I, I think it's the same advice for philanthropy as other uh, fields is those things. Well, that is great advice. I like the part about the relationships because it all about relationships. You know what? If you want to meet a CEO or an executive, participate in some of these charities. You're going to see leaders there, and what a great way to get to meet people. Um, well, for you personally, Christy, what has, what has brought you the most satisfaction at Pfizer? Oh, my gosh. There are so many things, but I, I know we're getting to the end of our hour, so I want to talk about the most exciting thing that we're working on right now, which is an initiative that we started um, this fall with the Heinz Endowments. It's called Disability Inclusion and Access Moving Forward. And so we have a website. The website is disabilityinclusionpgh.org. 
Um, and it is an initiative that recognizes that many foundations, many nonprofit organizations already have people with disabilities working for them, volunteering for them, giving money for them, seeking services from them, but a lot have not really thought about disability. And so many of them have barriers that could be fixed pretty easily, you know, that they maybe don't ask people who register for events about um, whether they need accommodations, for instance, or if they have a website that they haven't really made sure that the website is accessible to somebody who's blind or that their their videos that they have are captioned for somebody who's deaf. And so this initiative, Disability Inclusion and Action Moving Forward, is about helping people recognize that there's lots of small, relatively small accessibility barriers that could be pretty easily fixed. And so this initiative is providing support in terms of resources and education. So um, we're so pleased to be working with uh, the Bender Consulting Team on a series of webinars. And so the webinars are all free, an hour long. They're all live captioned um, and available after the fact about very concrete things that people can do to remove accessibility barriers and be more welcoming and inclusive of people with disabilities. So there's lots of ways to be involved there, and it's free. Anybody can join. We have a great webinar coming up tomorrow. But the whole series is on disabilityinclusionpgh.org. Well, that is great. I love it. I do love it. Uh, Sadly, we have already come to the end of the show. And before we go, first of all, thanks, Christy, for being with us. Oh, thank you so much, Joyce, for having me. And thanks for your leadership in creating this global network of people who care about and are working on disability access and inclusion. Thank you. By the way, you can listen to my show on demand from Voice America at their live internet talk radio show website, or you can subscribe to the show from your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or Stitcher. But right now, we got to end the show with a quote that I think fits what we're doing, talking about today. And it is, the life of a man consists not in seeing visions and in dreaming dreams, but in active charity and in willing service, said Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you all next week with Paula Vallette from Employment Options. Talk then. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. We are the leader in live Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.